0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 345th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that loves to do talkies about proxies with Maxima Moxie. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic: The Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host James Chilcott, aka at MTG Critic on Twitter. My co-host is Derek the Dark Mage at OkoAssassin on Twitter, and we're here to help you folks make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic:
1: The Gathering. Hey everyone, Derek here. Looking forward to another great conversation this week. Although after last week, feels a little quiet on the Magic front. A uh, good thing we're gonna. Keep going on the topic with our special guest tonight. But before that, and before we jump in, I want to remind listeners that this show is produced by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to plan your specs, chat on Discord, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff, Inc., where you can find all sorts of cool,
0: nerdy stuff in stock, including all the best in Magic the Gathering singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use the promo code FINANCE5, that's the number 5, during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save 5% off your order and support this podcast. Derek, what is on our agenda this week?
1: Well, James, we have our usual four segments. Uh, First off, we're going to kick things off with segment one, our MTGO weekend review after that we'll move on to segment two where we'll chat about the top movers of the week and discuss why we thought these cards saw significant gains finally next we'll go to segment three where we'll discuss our cards to watch uh, where both of us will share our insights on what we have our eyes on at the moment And finally, we'll wrap things up with segment four, our topics of the week. And this week, we have a special guest, uh, Michael Caffrey of Tales of Adventure, who will talk about the big announcements that we heard last week about $1,000 Magic 30 booster packs and their potential impacts on the high-end magic market. So with that out of the way, why don't we jump into segment one, the MTGO Weekend Review. Well, before we get into that,
0: since we've got Michael on the tail end of the cast, why don't we have a little chit-chat about the this banned list announcement from Monday? What was your take on uh, Yorion being banned in Modern and Meat Hook Massacre
1: in standard and was it also pioneer no just standard just just nothing in pioneer which is what everyone was looking for i think obviously people were interested in modern too but the price of fabled uh fabled the mirror breaker for example dropped from 50 to 25 ahead of the announcement and then immediately rebounded to 55 uh, on Magic Online, of course. And so people were watching Pioneer pretty closely. I think some people were disappointed to see no bans, but it's not really surprising considering they have the big upcoming uh, Pro Tour qualifier tournaments here. And, you know, that wouldn't really be fair to folks that were prepping for that. Uh, So I think it made sense to keep Pioneer the same. For Modern, you know, we're going to talk about the Modern Challenge here in a minute, but the top 16 had zero Urion decks, and there was only two in the top 32. And so, Urion matters. It's, you know, a staple. It was a staple, I should say. Uh, it's important, but I don't think it changes a whole lot. There are already people posting a lot of deck lists online saying they're already 5 owing with 60-card uh, versions of it, some of them using other companions, uh, just filling in that slot with something else. And so, I don't think it'll have a huge change. Uh, Standard... First off, who cares? I even saw somebody on Twitter saying that uh, they thought standard really affected prices on cards like this. I don't tend to agree with that take. I think not a lot of people are building standard these days, but on things like uh, arena and to a lesser extent mtgo you know this will make a big difference Um, but overall it'll it'll tweak this tweak it but you know not a lot of decks were playing meat hook more than one to two copies nowadays Uh, they dropped a little bit over the last couple months so it'll matter but the black decks will stay pretty good but it might give aggro a little bit of room to breathe in the standard format for a change so the thing that jumped out at me is that the wizard's
0: explanation as to why they went after Yorion? Just rang utterly hollow. They spent a bunch of time in their explanation talking about how they were concerned with the uh, the problems of people shuffling up hundred card decks instead of eighty card decks, especially given that fetch lands in modern require a lot of shuffling.
1: Yeah, they well, and they, yeah, they focused it on paper, and I did see a number of people complaining about this. In reality, uh, during some of the last big paper tournaments, that people were going to time, that a lot of the people going to time were all the four-color decks that, you know, you crack a chef, shuffle. And I think a lot of people said, well, EDH is 100 cards, so what's the problem? Um, To me, I think part of the difference is, one, EDH isn't timed. uh, But also, you have, if you're doing it on your turn, oftentimes you can pass the turn, shuffle while others are playing... And it gives you a little bit more breathing room. But yeah, I I agree. I think it was an excuse. I think it wasn't the real reason, but I do think it was a factor of many. The MGG critic in me says what's really going on here is
0: wizards didn't like the optics of four color Omnath being relatively dominant tier one tier, you know, 0.5 and it going by the nom de plume money pile. They didn't they weren't happy with how expensive this made that particular deck, um, with 20 more cards required, requiring a wider swath of fetches and shocks and tri lands, and most of the, a lot of the main cards in the deck being often being mythics.
1: Yeah, I agree. I, $2,000 decks is what we used to only, was reserved for Jund, which wasn't even that good. Um, so yeah, anytime you get up into the $2,000 price range for a deck, it's it's a little bit too much for most folks. And you know, the other thing is, it's not mostly lands. That's the other thing, is that the, the card quality and the land filtering with Renin-6 was so high that the land count was only about 28 for a lot of these, 29 lands. And so... It's what's going to get cut is a lot of actual cards, not even lands, which is amazing to me.
0: This one feels like an overreach to me. I see it very similarly to when they got rid of Lurus, which we're now far enough out from that I think I can definitively say was not necessary. Like looking at where the format's at, it has it did not pivot significantly on Lurus being absent from the format. Uh, and I don't. I think we are still going to see Omnath decks in the future forward format without Yorion. And so all we're really doing is adjusting the price of one deck, and that does not seem like the kind of situation where wizards should be getting involved. And and I definitely don't buy that shuffling is a major tournament problem because though I believe it happens, I also believe that it's the responsibility of judges to step in and adjust. Like they're they they need to tell those pilots need to learn to hurry up, or they shouldn't play that deck. And that doesn't just go for Yorion, it goes for any deck that, that fetches a lot. I mean, leaving Renin Six plus fetch lands in the format means there are still gonna be plenty of decks that need to shuffle many times per game. With or
1: without Yorion. I think WotC wanted to ban this when they banned Lures. They just didn't want to pull the trigger on two different bans at once. Or,
0: or or didn't want didn't want to admit what a catastrophe the good companions were exactly. in, in, in actuality
1: were. Hey, th- this is after role change and bands of other companions that they finally came around and got rid of this um you know it's one of those things where it was an utter failure by waty to not find this as an you know a broken mechanic it was an absolutely broken mechanic and it was still broken after they fixed it which shows you how broken it was. And so I'm glad it's gone in the larger sense. I mean, it's ripping off a bandit. It doesn't hurt players for the most part. I think that's the good thing here. All these cards are played in other decks. None of them are unique to Money Pile. And so it's not like any of them are going to come crashing down. But uh, if they ban something like Renin Six, which is the other card that was talked about in Modern, that would be real tough. I mean, that breaks archetypes. It breaks... These five, four or five color piles and be able to have these low deck lands. I mean, the card itself is, you know, a place that's even now that it's down in price, $200 plus. So uh, that would be tough. But this one, I'm okay with. I mean, my heart goes out to the guy
0: who bought a Japanese foil Yurion from me for $50 plus uh, last week and is, you know. <laughs> Gonna be wrecked before he even gets it in his hands. I'm dying to see if he's going to claim it didn't arrive or that it's uh, somehow elsewise pl- problematic. People sometimes have trouble digesting that they've purchased a
1: pointless piece of cardboard. Mm-hmm. But looking at the list right now, I, you know, I think the things that probably come out are Mishra's Bobble, um, maybe Traverse the Uvenwald. I mean, some of these cards that are good, but not great. Um, Ice Fang quaddle to an extent, depending on the meta. Uh, you know, these cards that you can trim and it doesn't fundamentally undermine the deck and, you know, maybe you have to be a little bit more resilient to the side. I, I
0: think the consensus is that Omnoth, Omnath decks will pivot to the Elementals
1: version with Risen Reef. Um, I've heard that. I They're both good in different ways. So I I think it's a meta call personally, but we'll see. But I know, I think, I, I'm trying to think who was the streamer that was saying that? It was somebody big. Was it a Spike? Sparring Spike? Yeah, I was talking so, about it, I think. Yeah, yeah.
0: The, the, the funny thing about Yorion is I didn't realize for a while that you can't play it in Commander. Because I played Commander for years without realizing that not only is the minimum deck size 100, that's also the maximum deck size.
1: Interesting. I did not know that either.
0: So one night with the, with the uh, Pro Trader EDH night, I tried to uh, field Yorion as my companion for I want to say it was something like Xur, the Enchanter or something. Assuming I could just go up to 120 cards. Because personally, if that wasn't a rule, I would I would play mostly 120 card decks just because I like to have a little bit more variability in my commander games. I don't want to... Sure. I'm going to play the same deck a bunch of times. I'd rather it play out a little differently each time. So I think bigger decks are fine, especially when we're playing on webcam. And uh, yeah, no, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Yurion is dead useless now outside of Pioneer.
1: Yeah, it's too bad. I I still want to play one of the Lutri decks in Modern or Legacy. I know some people have been able to five O leagues with that, playing one copy of every card. Yeah, maybe, like maybe one Cryptic just, Command and yeah, so forth. And yeah, just just to say that you did it, kind of like Battle of Wits. All right, so getting right into this
0: actual MTGO metagame week and review Modern challenge from this Saturday, October eighth. Uh, first place Yogmoth combo. They were also sixth and eighth. So keep your eye on on relevant copies of Yawgmoth, including the Time Spiral Remastered ones. Amulet Titan in third, Greentron in fourth, Hammer Time in seventh rounds, most of that out. And then the two most interesting decks by far, second place, Mono Red Breach. Now Jeskai Breach finished in fifth, and we saw that deck again last week. And it's a deck that um, uh, Aspiring Spike has been working on on stream But the Mono Red Breach version is a completely different deck. This is about uh, low-slung, prowess-style red creatures with a bunch of spells that can be cast uh, fast and frequently. And then they're running Underworld Breach as a way to cast everything out of the yard in the late game once somebody gets a sweeper off against them or manages to to, uh, get them hellbent. They're also running four Electrostatic Infantry in that brigade of fast red creatures, which is a card that has done a ton of work for the Blue, Red, and Jeskai players in Dominario United draft this season.
1: Yeah, this is the first time I've seen this in i think a top eight it's been top 32ing a little bit here and there uh electrostatic infantry but you know i guess i i've read the card before but i didn't realize until just recently that it was plus one one counters which is why people like it so much i i don't know why i just kind of glazed over that and was looking mostly at the trample which obviously matters too when you're just mega pumping your creature but it's funny this is like not that far off from the popper deck realistically that I you know I've played before where you just you know boost it it's the same base cards where it's mutagenic growth, um, you know, some of these others that just light your creature up and then get it through. a um, little bit of a base package. But yeah, these decks are they're fragile. But if you can get in quick enough, it doesn't matter. But that's where the Underworld Breach comes in, is that even though they're fragile, they they could rebuild real fast with the Underworld Breach, especially with Bobble combined with Dragon Rage, Channeler filling the yard, giving you a little bit of cards to exile to to build back up. So uh, I'll be curious if we see more of this, you know, the more people are experimenting with, uh, you know new decks after the bands the more cards or decks like this that are hyper aggressive uh, get in easier easier because they're they're not playing against this tuned of decks so
0: we'll see. Alright, and then Jeskai Breach, as we said, was the fifth place list, and this is with two Teferi Time Raveler, four Underworld Breach, four Emery, uh, four Ledger Shredder, four Ragavan, Athas' Oracle, three Expressive Iteration, Galvanic Blast, four Unholy Heat and a bunch of artifacts supporting Grinding Station. So the deal here, and we had World Championship uh, Andre Andre Mangucci on stream with Aspiring Spike for a big chunk of the weekend as they were, I think, both at the SEG tournament, if I'm not mistaken, that went down this weekend. And they were on stream talking over the the finer points of this. And it basically boils down to grinding people out um, or... uh, more often grinding yourself down to a fast oracle trigger
1: yeah and for those that haven't played with it you know the kind of combination is when you have underworld breach out and you have mox amber you can kind of go off with the grinding station because every time you're using grinding station you're putting three cards in the yard plus sacrificing the amber uh and when you do that you're you're getting one mana you're bringing back the Amber using exiling the three cards that you just put in the yard. And you can just keep doing that over and over again to keep milling, keep building up, uh, unlimited mana, and then, you know, be able to have a little bit of protection plus drop your Thassa Oracle for the win.
0: Over in the pioneer challenge looked very standard, uh, given that Fable of the Mirror uh, has not been banned, I wouldn't expect a whole lot to change in this format anytime soon. black red mid-range as, uh, is typical in 1st, Abzan Greasefang in 2nd, Mono White Humans in 3rd and 6th, Mono Green in 4th and 8th, Bant Spirits in 5th, and another Black-Red mid-range deck
1: in 7th. Totally unrelated to the deck lists themselves. I will say when you look on the deck lists, they have now subbed in the Infinity duels, and man are they gorgeous they are absolutely I, I was i was scrolling through the lands just to see what i was missing and it, it popped up and it, almost all of them are just breathtaking so I'm, I'm expecting the those versions especially the non-foils that aren't uh that common to do well over time i, I definitely want to pick up a playset
0: well, getting right into the top paper movers then, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about those. Godless Shrine Galaxy Foils went from 120 to almost 200 this weekend. They've since settled back to about 150 for 25% gains over the last few days. That's early pressure due to low supply. It takes very many packs of Infinity Collector Boosters to pull one of these Galaxy Foil uh, Shocklands. And it doesn't seem to be all that much of Infinity getting cracked because they're... The, the overall reception of the set has been a little bit chilly. So on the one hand, vendors are appreciating the fact that they can recoup a big chunk of their wholesale costs just by selling two or three key singles out of each box. But the overall demand for the singles in this set beyond the basic lands, Saw in Half, and the duels seems very minimal.
1: Yep, and Saw in Half is up. I don't think it's on this list but is up to I think like 25 for the galaxy foils currently which is way up from the last time we talked about it uh last week I guess so I think I I think it's
0: off the list because I double checked on that and it wasn't actually sitting at that price I think it was bad It had data.
1: went up then down then up I believe Uh let me just see where we're sitting currently Yeah we're at about 23 you're not far off Yeah So yeah, yeah so it looks a- like under the price history it went 18 to 26 to 14 to now 24 or so
0: just... target targeted again in the last 36 hours it looks like Yep. yep all right uh we got splinter twin making a move last week mm15 version 650 to eight dollars just 23 percent gains that's on unban expectations which are, again have been shattered for i don't know the 40th time or something guys just leave splinter twin on the shelf it's not not going anywhere uh irenicus's vile duplication out of commander legends battle for baldur's gate four to five dollars just 25 percent gains but it's probably going to be a slow gainer over time i think as a, a pretty great commander duplicator somebody was asking me in the discord the other day if i had it in my gerson uh, deck and i don't but i do have other cloning effects because with sakashima and and other clones you get to double up on Gearson's triggers uh, Varagoth the Blood Sky Sire from Calltime $4 to $6. That's almost certainly on the back of the EDH Demon's deck that is present given the 40k Demon's deck. Uh now looking for cards that aren't automatically reprinted in that deck, and Varagoth fits the bill. Uh we've also got Orvar, the All Form, out of Calltime going 425 to 650. That's been seeing modern sideboard play. Uh, as counterplay against uh, a variety of nonsense
1: yeah so specifically it's going after the four color creativity decks and having so when it, you discard it it comes in as a copy and so you can do it uh, as counter to uh eight eight or the eight mana flyer why am i blanking on the name pulling it up here uh our yeah Archon of cruelty so Archon of cruelty makes you pitch card you pitch this then you put in your own version of archon and make them sack their archon so pretty good counter tech and and that's because the way
0: archons triggers stack you discard first and then it destroys your orvar and as it targets orvar you get to make an archon which then targets the first archon
1: Uh, I'm gonna look it up. I think it makes a duplicate when it pitches. Let me see.
0: Because or- oh. Orvar says, when whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, if it targets one or more yeah. other permanents you control, create a token that's a copy of one of those permanents. Whenever a spell or an opponent controls yeah, causes you to discard a card, create a token that's a copy of target permanent. Ah, okay. Yeah. So the, the archons on the on the battlefield, you pitch the Orvar which then lets you target their Archon to make a, a token that exactly. copies it, which you then use to destroy their Archon. Right. And then you're left with an Archon, which who doesn't love?
1: Got it. Yep. That's cute.
0: Uh, Thermo Alchemist Silver Screen Edition out of Innistrad Double Feature. Foils going 550 to 10. That's almost certainly on the back of Gearson. Uh, I run a copy of the card in there and it does work. Pretty much any of the tappers. Like we, I had a sharp goblin sharpshooter that was just turning into a machine gun on the games on the weekend. Um, nice. Any any time anything dies, it untaps the sharpshooter, and then it gets to shoot again. And if Gerson's out, it's shooting lightning bolts
1: for three. Yep. Nice. Yeah. Uh,
0: Tear asunder foils out of dominari United. Uh, very good kill spell in Dominaria United limited and pretty reasonable in EDH where it's showing up in 1600 reported decks on EDH rec, which is 4% of green deck so far, $2.50 to $4 for those foils. I would expect them to continue to drift back down. I don't think, I think it might be a decent longer term play, but there's still plenty of Dominaria United that will be opened over the next three to six months. And these foils are pretty easy to pull out of those packs indomitable creativity itself out of other revolt 17 to 35 uh i sold through a korean copy the other day uh in the mid-teens that looks like it was pretty early uh strong modern deck of course it was also my pick on cast uh, three episodes ago episode 342 and where it looks like we're on track to hit targets there on 342 i said it was gonna go 15 to 30 and we're seeing it here at 17 to 35 with relatively few
1: copies left on
0: with online vendors
1: yeah, mythics matter, right? Every time we talk about all these cards moving, you see a mythic, It the, the swings are bigger, they have higher potential. I think people sometimes underestimate, kind of look at rares and think, oh, well, they're so good. And even if they are, a mythic just has so much less supply that it, it can get there so much easier. Um, there's just,
0: there's just four, 14 listings left on this card, and it's going to be hard for it to
1: float much below 30 as long as the deck keeps doing well. So the MTG uh, data, which is a Twitter feed, I don't actually know who creates it, but they're using um, MTG Melee data, put put out a grid of the match win rates uh, based on MTG uh, Melee data. So it's not perfect, pretty good, but from September 12th to October 9th, and the top two win rates uh, was... Jeskai Breach at the top with 58.2%, and if that held, it'd be pretty problematic, uh, but pretty small sample size. There are only 200 uh, games, so not, not that played, but the I bring it up because Four Color Creativity is at 58.1%, uh, so just shy, very very good win rate. Anything above 50 per, 55% is generally viewed as problematic. So I'll be curious if people learn to fight back now that this is you know really a top tier deck. Uh, but if it doesn't that that's a problematic win rate for the future. But modern modern has a lot of answers. I imagine this will adjust going forward. Top of the heap this week we've got siphon sliver,
0: foil extended art which is a secret layer include that's relatively hard to pull and these were selling pretty briskly last couple weeks at in the low 30s and now the only copy left is at 121 dollars now no one's actually paid that price yet but you can expect it to settle I would say at least at 50 to 60 um, when the dust clears because there just aren't that many of these
1: around yeah, it just depends if they're continually dropped going forward. I know some of the participant, persistent partitioners were getting up to three, four, five hundred dollars 500 at one point, and they dropped back to, you know, still a high amount, I think like 100 or so. But, um, you know, low low supply equals high prices for cards that maybe aren't seeing that much play. But Siphon Sliver sees a decent amount, I would think, in Sliver decks.
0: All right, walk us on through the top Magic Online movers of the week.
1: Yeah, so a couple repeats, or at least one repeat. So we start with Merktide Regent, and this is just general movement uh, going up from 16 to 21 uh, for a 31% gain. And that's mainly based on the fact that it didn't get banned in Legacy, so people were buying back in, I believe. Uh, Next up, Wedding Announcement, which has been on this list for, I think, three weeks in a row. uh, And that's because now it went from 9 to 15 uh, for a 66% gain after several weeks of returns this is one i sold out of 28 copies for 400 ticks profit uh, that was very solid uh yeah next up land grant uh, here mercadia masks going from three to six uh, i didn't actually see anything that pr- particularly moved this but i'm guessing it was something in the challenges and finally ovar the all form for the same reasons that were talked about going from about two to seven so uh, almost a 300 percent gain Already moving on over to cards to
0: watch. What is your first selection of the week?
1: Sure, so I, I, yeah, I'll prelude this by saying I, I was lacking inspiration this week. Um, I looked around quite a few things and put them on and took them off the list and put them on and took them off. So maybe did my research for future weeks, but this is where I ended up. Uh, first off, Zakama the Primal Calamity, which is the Judge Foil version, which is currently sitting around $40. Uh, previously, it's been out for about a year with supplies trickling in uh, previously, it was up to over $150 upon original release. Uh, and now it is priced at parity, relatively speaking, with the other foils of this card. And so for a Judge Foil, you know, parity with the regular version in the long term is probably a pretty good buy-in point. Usually that's the floor for any card like this. Uh, so for that reason, I think now is an okay time to buy in. I don't think there's a rush, but uh, going forward, this has 12,000 EDH rec decks, so it is... A solid number uh, but in addition the sales are pretty strong on this uh, some of these you look at and they're you know selling one here one there but here it was it was a good number of sales solid one two three a day uh and on top of that it's a mythic which i mentioned is you know just absolutely critical uh and most importantly the new ixalan set is coming up which is both an opportunity and a risk obviously this could see another reprint Going into that in collector boosters and things like that, which is a risk, but judge foils usually temper that pretty well. Uh, but it's also already seen a non foil, the list printing, and now this judge foil. So I think it could be off the table. And if it is, I think it'll easily move pretty hard. And so I have it going from 40 to 80. Uh, over the next 24 months and so that's something that i have a confidence level of eight i think you know it'll it'll probably get there it's a great card people like it you get the dinosaurs back people will want to buy in to the the best looking version in my opinion all right i can buy that
0: i've done well on judge foils in the past and zakama is is a popular enough card in uh red white green decks in edh that i can see this getting there Currently, we're looking at 55 listings left on TCG TCGPlayer, something like that. Near Mint, it's only about 37. And release date on this was last year. I think this was Q- a Q4 judge release or Q3 judge release in 2021. So give it any amount of time. It, you know, I don't know if it's going to hit 60, 70, or 80, but it's going to be a gainer because if you if you look at sales, it does manage to snap off a sale per day kind of thing, which is pretty solid for a 40 or 50 dollar Judge foil. And again, hard for these to get pulled in on buy lists because they tend to go from judges straight
1: into collections. All right, what's your next? What's your pick, James?
0: I'm going to go with Underworld Breach extended art. Foil extended art has been on this cast before, but not the EAs. Uh, In the next six months or so, I would imagine that these extended arts are going to go 12 to 24 or so. It's rapidly ascending in modern and multiple deck shells, as we just looked at earlier in the metagame review. 69,000 decks on EDH rec run it, 9% of all red decks, 33 listings with no major walls. Could show up in a secret layer, but there's almost nothing else on the agenda where it seems likely to appear. And given that, I think it's going to be a relatively safe spec for the next six to 12 months.
1: So I'm looking at the, so this is the EA version. So the non ea version recently started moving. So it went from market price of 450 to now about 8 or so. Um, so that's already seen movement and closed the gap, which tells me kind of as a, you know, that's an early indicator that if that's moving up, the EA eventually has to follow. So I would generally tend to agree it's on the upward trend. Let's see how supply looks. So, yeah, and it's down to 34 listings near Mint. So uh, pretty pretty low supply, relatively speaking. And this is something you buy in three or four of. So we know we talked about that in the past. But you, you get something that's tournament playable, but also EDH, and your people are buying threes or four copies at once. You can just churn through, and that's you know one of the things we talked about with the nominal creativity just a month or two ago, and it's already moved. So I like it. I think it's good thing in EDH is you might not even... You might
0: buy more than one copy there as well just because it's not a uh, a specific theme necessarily that you're leaning into with Underworld Breach. Yards tend to get full in games of EDH if somebody doesn't clear them and Breach just does good work whether or not you have a graveyard recursion theme or graveyard filling theme going on
1: in your deck. So when was Beyond death? That was January 2020. So... I'm just thinking through the 60, a lot of the products we pick are less than two years old. So is 69,000, the number over just the last two years, correct? Yep. Yeah. So it's staying popular. It's not like it was popular right away and then kind of faded because that first year of data would be taken out of this at this point. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's good. All right. How about your next one? All right. Help me, help me pronounce this. I'm bad with pronunciations. You're Junji, Junji, the Midnight Sky. Uh, so this is one of the Neo Dragons, specifically a Borderless version is the one I'm looking at. Uh, but I think the logic probably goes across most of the Dragon cycle. Uh, it, people like dragons, right? They're they're solid type. People love them. They the the dragons affect the battlefield and here it affects uh most of or all of your opponents when it triggers uh, upon death and so for those reasons the the usage on these are decent they're not amazing but 18,000 edh rec decks uh you know the sales are solid and so people are having fun with these cards and so as a result you uh, look at the price charts you know it started higher it's kind of dropped off and it's now it's leveled off around $20 a piece uh, just a little bit above that, and it's kind of level. And so, my anticipation is that a card like this is a low priority for reprints outside of maybe a secret layer. Uh, and so, over time, it'll just slowly build and build and build, and we'll go from a $20 card to a $40 card. Um, you know, we've already seen some movement on the lower end dragons from Neo uh, in the non kind of borderless foil premium version. I've sold some that I've listed in at two all the way up to 10. Um, so I, that's what kind of tipped me off to this is that, you know, people like dragons, these are popular, they give people flashbacks to Champion Kawagawa dragons, which were much beloved. Uh, so I think over time, this and many of the others from that set in similar position will just slowly rise and double up over about 18 months. It's at surprisingly low listings.
0: Most of these Mm -hmm. dragons have been off my radar. Other than that, I flagged early on that buy list support for them in Japan was very strong, despite them not really having a tournament home over there. And so what that said to me was just because they are Japanese style dragons, they were popular as collectibles, as opposed to as game pieces. And with... That providing kind of a a reservoir of demand against these copies in future, um, plus the EDH demand and the general popularity of the Kamigawa dragons, especially for people that played back in the original, uh, you know, CHK era. And this is just a generally good, like mid-tier good EDH card, where like if you get it onto the table... And get it to die. You get to take any creature out of any graveyard as long as it's not a dragon, and put it into play onto your side. And then if you've got ways to get Junji back and play over and over again, you can steal a whole bunch of stuff. So looking over the supply, given that we're less than a year out and already down to just twenty nine listings at twenty bucks a foil borderless, yeah, I think this is going to get there. I don't know if it's going to be. You know, you said eighteen months, and I think that is. uh a conservative but likely scenario. I think six months might be too short for this to sell out. They don't sell that quickly. There's not tremendous pressure on a day to day basis on the card. And it is primarily just EDH pressure. Um, but in that 12 to 18 month range, seems about right.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, I think Neo is a set I'm looking at now because there's not a lot of. Um sealed supply just sitting out there especially of the collector boosters so if you look at vow you look at midnight hunt and some of these and you know god forbid um boulder's gate you know, they're there's so much supply, they're going on clearance, you're seeing Amazon sales, all these things. Neo's not in that same boat, and so I think a lot of the supply is already out there. You're not gonna see the mass crack jobs that you might for these others that risk just completely hollowing out your specs, uh, in a in a blink when they post a two hundred copy wall. So that's part of the reason I like the Neo specs specifically.
0: There's just a ton of great cards in the set. Fable of the Mirror Breaker missing its chance at the ban list, at least for now. Um The five rare lands, the Wandering Emperor, Farewell, uh, Junji, Taxius, Reckoner Bankbuster is a fast-growing EDH staple that does a lot of work. Um, Fantastic basic lands. Just a good card. I mean, just a good group of cards. Also got Secluded secluded Courtyard, Atsushi the Blazing Sky. Yeah. yeah, A lot of good cards. Temp- Temio safekeeping, yeah. It's a very deep set. Alright, my final selection this week is a Secret Layer Include card. I'm going to go with Harmonic Sliver, Foil Extended Arts, currently available around $18 to $20 in the market, and I figure given that Siphon Sliver has dried up and is pushing whatever, 50, 60, 70, whatever it lands at, Harmonic Sliver uh, being an equally, if not more popular Sliver and EDH decks where it's a 9,700 deck's on EDH rack, which isn't like S-Tier staple, but it's an 86% of all sliver decks. And because these foil extended art versions of the slivers are only available as the secret layer inserts, they are not widely distributed in the marketplace outside of the hands of people that are handling secret layers. And so once some fresh batch of slivers shows up in a future set which is of course what people have been assuming is forthcoming possibly related to dominaria remastered or some part of the storyline fighting the phyrexians the eventually there will be some new five color sliver lord that will you know dominate the edh charts for a few months and people will be looking to get their hands on the fanciest versions of slivers available Harmonic sliver is very, very handy because anytime a sliver hits the battlefield, you get to destroy an artifact or enchantment, which is an undervalued and underplayed effect in the format. So for these to go 18 to 36, given, say, 6 to 12 months, seems very likely to me.
1: So what is your maximum that you'd want to pay for one of these? Because there is only 8 copies currently on TCG, and they ramp pretty quick to 25, and then they're non-existent. I'm curious where you'd cut it off.
0: There's nine listings left on that particular platform. You can find other copies scattered around the internet. And that's why I would target this over something like Mana Weft Sliver, where there is significantly deeper reservoir of copies. Because these got down as low as $9, and then people started targeting them, and they've already driven the price up into the high teens. But where is the resupply going to come from?
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, I've opened a lot of secret layers, and these are not that prevalent um i've opened one over and i order basically a full full load of many secret layers so uh yeah and like you said in the sales there it's it doesn't look like it got hammered by one speculator i mean it's solid sales over the over the last month really going copy or two sometimes three every day over the last 30 days so it doesn't look like somebody swooped in and ordered them all and just kind of cleared it out it's a natural progression uh, probably from a lot of speculators but definitely natural progression i, I like this i mean it's low risk I mean, what's it i mean the worst comes the worst you buy it at 18 it goes down to nine ten again and then uh, if if another sliver set comes out it comes right back up and so as long as you're in it for the long term i don't think there's a lot of downside and only upside i really can't see what pushes this back down to ten um
0: there there would just need there would need to be a whole bunch of secret layers cracked and then these pulled and i think the sets in question where these can be pulled from have already either been cracked or put on shelves for a
1: future sealed sale and you just never know a secret layer so i mean the the stainless i mean it seems crazy now but the stainless walkers were one of these for a long time i mean they were very rare people were paying a ton of money for them and then they would put them in everything for well yeah not not quite the stained glass
0: walkers were present for well over a year and some of them were because they did things like okay this is a blue drop so all the blue walkers will be available in it i there doesn't there's no indication that that's what's happening with the slivers if we get the next two or three drops and the slivers continue to show up then we would definitely want to revise our outlook but they've been rotating through the stuff pretty quickly like, we, we've we had a whole bunch of different inserts over the last year, whereas in the first year of Secret Layers, it was basically just the stained glass Planeswalkers for a long time, and then some basic lands.
1: Yeah, I so, mean, to be clear, I don't think that's likely. I think that's the risk. Um, yep, that's correct. I don't think it's likely. And uh, just to give you an example, so Liliana um, Dreadhorde General was one that had gotten up to, I mean, this was after all the other walkers were getting more prevalent and all of that. Liliana never got reprinted. It got up to $94 for the stained glass. And then it was included in every single black... Uh, one of the secret... Black ones is magic? Remember. No, no, no. It's um, It had like Razakoth and...
0: Oh, the Liliana themed... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah Liliana themed okay. one. With the and demons. It was,
1: it was in both the etched version and the foil version. So it got double hit. And it just got tanked. So it went from 90-something down to immediately 26. down to like twenty seven, then it dropped yeah. down all the way to like seventeen, and now just now, finally like, you know, almost a year later, not quite, nine months later, it's finally starting to trend upwards again. Uh but like I said, it, they could just blow you out because they make hey, who would have thought they just throw Liliana in every one? Why not just throw her in one in ten <gasps> I or mean, something? And now that I'm looking at that page, Liliana stained glass is probably a buy at twenty. <laughs> I, I kept mine. I uh I debated buying by, by listing and I, I was like, you know what? I'm good with this. Like, the at the time, the non-foil Liliana's were 27 which, you know, I was kind of like, well, hopefully that holds the floor. It didn't. But, you know, they're still pretty close. I think when I decided to hold, they were at, like, 30
0: Just goes to show, when you see a super steep spike up into, like, the $90 range, you just got to take your exit. Yep, 100%. Alrighty, moving on over to our final segment we uh did a pretty lengthy chat last week uh, on the topic of the magic 30th edition these thousand dollar booster boxes of magic that wizards has uh dropped on the community uh to a combination of applause and horror and we've got uh Prominent Magic vendor, Michael Caffrey, head of Tales of Adventure Gaming, hot off a successful weekend of vending over at the SEG tournament in Dallas. Welcome, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. How, how was your weekend at one of the first big events in a,
2: uh, I guess, new new framework for COVID era? So we've done all of the SCG Tour events since they resumed at the start of the year. Um, the overarching trend is that the number of players has gotten smaller across most of them. Um, the main event had about 400 players in it, which is, again, on, on the small side. Uh, in terms of the numbers, we're still buying a lot of cards. We're still selling a lot of cards. All of that is 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 doing fine. Um, but events are in an odd place right now, right? There's no, no Pro Tour, no... Uh, grind that players can really latch onto so um, we're not really sure where, where those are going.
0: Yeah, I mean fair enough. The did you find that with your the the way that you ran your business during the lockdown period of the pandemic when things weren't just worse, they were non-existent, was was there a major shift in strategy that was necessary both to market the brand and your and your cards for sale? Did social media start to take a bigger role in your overall operation?
2: Social media absolutely took a bigger role on everything that we're doing. Um, we're pretty active on Twitter at this point at TOA Michael, where we're selling, uh, doing three posts a day all week long of various oddball items. Uh, we're getting a lot of collections mail to us from from people that reach out through there as well. Uh, overall, uh, the pandemic hasn't been a huge impact on. What we're doing, because so much of our uh, business is structured around owning assets and inventory instead of of cash flow, right? If you you think about a restaurant, most of what a restaurant does is paying for a lot of labor, paying for the building, and the amount of money they spend on food is relatively low. So as their cash flow falls, they just don't do anything. Whereas here, because so much of our expenses were buying inventory and uh, selling inventory, you're paying... 70% Seventy percent of your inventory. If we stop buying and keep selling, then we just have more money at the end of the day. We're not really hurt until we get to a point where we're just not able to buy anything at all.
0: And so, during an era where there was a reduced access to buy listing, you could just dial back on purchasing and focus on sales, and it could carry you forward.
2: Right. As long as as long as your buys and sells are in check, and you don't have too much labor, like it's it's hard to really. Uh, run into too many problems gotcha
0: so moving on over to the big topic of the week this 30th edition product from wizards of the coast after 30 years they finally decide to revisit this premise of challenging the reserve list um, in spirit if if not in actuality uh, vis-a-vis the shifted uh, card back which designates the cards as not capable of being played in sanctioned tournaments for the most part um, although EDH at the LGS level is certainly still a question mark uh, in a lot of cases what's your top level take on this product as as it from a vendor perspective is this a net positive for you and your team
2: short answer it's great to see Wizards of the Coast creating new products trying to appeal to a different market segment Um, having a a variety of things for people to buy is is good obviously we're seeing a lot of different products right now and who knows where that is in five years and there are definitely some concerns about there being too many products Um, I don't know if this is the one that puts it over the top though Um, I know that a lot of people are excited for the Potential of, of being able to open some of these powerful cards, and that may be enough to to carry the product.
0: So a lot of the social media reaction was obviously quite negative. There's a there's a whole kind of container of thought around this that says it's a cash grab, it is a ripoff. It, these are just quote unquote proxies. Um, a lot of people, you know, going so far as to say that they. They would go out of their way not to play with people that are tabling these cards. Um, cutting through all that noise, as a vendor looking three months out beyond the release, do you expect to have a buy list in play to pick up the key cards from this set?
2: I think it's going to depend a lot on what the the market kind of bears out for for pricing on this stuff. Um, you know, you have a finite amount of capital and you certainly wouldn't want to buy 100 Moxeries from this set. At the same time, I think there will be an audience that wants things like the Revised Duels in particular, Uh, but it really depends on what the the prices look like. Uh, There's certainly a price I would would buy any of these cards at.
0: One of the things that I think is interesting here that Derek and I talked about last week was that the set has been flagged as almost... I wouldn't say certainly, but it seems very likely that Wizards' financial internal financial analysis structured the price of the set around the current market prices of Collector's Edition and International Collector's Edition, which was like 14,000 square-cornered versions of beta that were printed back in 93 or 94, and sat on shelves for a long time, and then slowly accumulated value, and then kind of exploded over the course of two major uh areas of crypto ascendancy plus reserve list targeting to get to the point where a, a set currently goes for something in the low 20,000s US with that providing a a bit of a floor um or perhaps a ceiling depending on who you, on who you talk to for what the the relevant singles will be worth do you does your gut tell you that around cornered gold border but on the back so all the parts of the card facing the the player from within a sleeve version of a dual land is superior or inferior to a ce or ice version being tabled in a commander environment
2: it's tough because all of the collector edition product has been so stigmatized for for so long uh, both between the corners, and uh, you know, it's standing out as as not a real card because of that's how Watsy's considered it for so long. I think there is a healthy amount of nostalgia from the people who are most on the internet about wanting uh, the the beta art, the beta styling, black borders. But if you look at a a card like Watery Grave from. Uh, Ravnica plus, uh, return to Ravnica plus, the the second time we return to Ravnica, you know you see uh, a valley in the middle, right? Where like the original printing has value, and then the most recent printing has value, but the middle that RTR gate crash era kind of lags in price, and a lot of people just like the silver symbol on the bottom. So having like that counterfeit stamp type appeal, um, I think the duels have counterfeit stamps on them, right?
0: I would imagine they should gives
2: it some some gravitas to being the most desirable version for a significant portion of of the audience.
0: I think I think from my perspective, it is the potential people keep talking about how this is no challenge at all to revise duels. But when I'm considering like what aesthetically I would rather have in my deck for EDH, if I'm choosing between a retro frame black border underground sea versus a pretty beat up hp white bordered like revised quote-unquote real underground sea i think aesthetically i prefer these 30th edition versions so i'm very very curious to see what percentage of the edh population will come around to that view and then i'm also curious as a follow-on to that as to how many of the players will be at all interested in the modern frame version uh versions of these cards since from a purely collectible perspective, this is the only modern frame power nine in existence. And one of the big factors in its potential success as a collectible, never mind the you know, the the sell-through at the retail side, which we'll talk about in a minute, seems like it it, it has to be total number of copies printed. And Derek and I batted around some numbers, and I've posted some stuff to Twitter based on some estimates. And my low side estimate on units printed was something like 10,000 is probably the bare minimum they would ever print. That would be like half the size of an early secret layer where the cheeky marketing number internally could be something like 30,000 because it's the 30th anniversary. And that seems to me like a number that could sell through. And then Derek was saying that he thinks they are overreaching here and that they probably printed 100,000 copies plus. And so we ran the math on all of that. And the thing is, we came up with almost no matter how you slice it, even if they printed 100,000 copies, you're still talking about very low numbers of the, the cards in question, the important cards in question, the Power Nine, the duels, and and some of the EDH staples, things like Wheel of Fortune and so forth. Because if they printed 100, 120,000 packs, which would be 30,000 Uh, boxes, each box having four packs, you end up with just 585 copies of the Retro Duels. And if you quad that to 120,000 boxes, you would still only have 2,000 copies of the Retro Duels, and you would have only 1,200 copies of of Retro Black Lotus, for instance. What's your gut? If you had to pick a number out of the air, given that You know, every 10,000 boxes is 10 million in revenue. And we know that this is a somewhere below billion dollar a year primary sales brand. How many units do you guess they're putting out there?
2: So my biggest factor in thinking about this is the fact that the artists will be getting artist proofs for this product. And if you're giving artists 50 artist proofs, you know, is that going to be 20% of your, of your print run? Like you're going to see really weird behavior happening. um, if, if the artist proofs are more prevalent on the market than the actual product. Um, which leads me to believe that the number is going to be on the on the high side. One of the back-of-the-envelope ways of looking at this is that I would expect WOTC to think that they could capture uh, the equivalent of one full month of total revenue in the gaming collectible space uh, for, for Magic, obviously. So if you look at what... TCG Player, SCG, Card Kingdom, uh, etc. kind of do online collectively in a month, that number is going to be about $100,000 in sales. And that may be, or $100 million, I'm sorry, $100 million in sales. That might be closer to 50, might be closer to 200. The, the point is, it's in the the order of magnitude of, of that. And I would expect them to be printing $100 million worth of this product and letting the market at it.
0: Okay, so you think $100 million in product, similar to what Derek was proposing, is a reasonable number. Let's say that this is an $800 million brand per year in primary sales from Watsi's side of things to distribution we're talking, not distribution to retail or retail to the market. Um, that if they were to print you know, 15% of their total revenue for the year in this product, do you think that's reasonable?
2: I think that is the upper limit of what... They would believe the market could bear.
0: Okay. So I think, uh, Derek, you, you, that's similar to your thinking as well, right?
1: Yeah. I, you know, I just think that Watsy has been aggressive in a number of things like VIP boosters in the pack, past. And although this product is very different than VIP boosters, you know They were aggressive there, even though, obviously, they were charging the upper limit of what they had done historically. And so I think that similar logic probably applies here, um, since they saw success on that in the past. Obviously, very different products uh, and very different, I think, long-term outlook. But th- that was my reasoning, is that you kind of take VIP, take the fact that it was successful, and say, well, we did it there. Why not do it here? Especially since here you can only do it once every so often i think we could debate on how often that is
0: my current thinking on this is that is it at about half what you guys are are comfortable with i think it's something like 50,000 units boxes so like 200,000 packs and my logic is based on the curve as i understand it the theories of retail pricing models so it's a massive your your mark, it's basically how much demand you have as you hit various benchmark price points in sale Walmart. When you go from a dollar to five dollars, five to ten, ten to 20, 20 to 50, 50 to 100, 100 to 250, then it's usually 500, a thousand and so forth. You get this very steep curve down where you can sell far fewer units as you move up from one to 5, ten and and so forth. And yes, it's true VIP did very well at the $100 price point, but the jump from 100 to to 1000 is is a very large jump indeed. And though I believe more than most people that this hobby is full of whales, lots of upper middle class, high income earners that spend tons of money and that their presence in the hobby has justified the booster fund era, that that is self-evident to me. Uh, I still have trouble believing that they are w- they were willing to print hundred million dollars worth of this product and make it a much you know, as big a chunk of their year as a very prominent set like say a double Masters 2022 would be because I-, I-, I figure that that's probably how much of their year that set was at you know a quarter of the price point per box.
1: So, I mean, I think it gets back to one point that I'd be interested in Michael's take on is uh, something that Bill Stark, former Watson employee, brought up on Twitter today is the number of players that play Magic and how many of those are really invisible outside of the Twitter, Twitter echo chamber, uh, which we hear from often. And so I'm just curious, Michael, in, in your kind of LGS and, you know, locally, how many of the people are the enfranchised players that we hear from all the time versus the people coming in kind of casually? And you really don't even follow, you know, Magic Twitter or any of that and are just casually buying products day to day. And, you know, what are, what are you hearing from them?
2: I don't have any great insights with um, the broader customer base, but with how many products are coming out, you know, players are discovering new product fairly regularly. We got a phone call from somebody asking about the Game Night box set. And it's like, oh, you're going to have that tomorrow. And we had to, like, check to see if it was going to be coming in because we kind of miss it as a product. And obviously, I think the wider world would miss a product like that, too, even though there's new cards in it. Uh, just There's just so much coming out um, that the, the reality is, uh, you know, there are way more Magic players than you realize. And the average Magic player has been playing the game way less of a time than, uh, than you would expect. Going back to the the water grave example, you know, if you if you play casual, you have, you have some friends. On average, one of your friends is going to be playing a lot longer than everyone else, and that number is going to be three to five years, give or take. So, you know, your friend says, "Oh, you should get a water grave for the deck," and they're going to, you know, ask, "Oh, what what set did that come out in?" And they're immediately going to go with, um, you know, Guilds of Ravnica, right? not realizing that there are multiple other printings. So just like the recency of, of how Magic players think means that uh, there is a really wide gap of, of where this audience falls.
0: Sure. What was the... Was this a, a frequent topic of discussion on the floor at the event you were at this weekend? Is it something that you ended up talking to other vendors about, other industry folk?
2: In our, our welcome letter before the show, we decided this was a topic we just weren't going to touch in terms of uh, customer interactions because it's just such a polarizing topic to be having um, with somebody you're trying to conduct business with. Uh, sure. And it was just much easier to, to just say, I think it's a cool product, but it's not for me and, and move on with the interaction. Uh, so I didn't really get a chance to talk all that much about where people's feelings are on the topic.
0: Let me take this from another angle. There, One of the things that I think is going to be... Pivotal, and maybe, maybe it's the only thing that matters here, um, and the reason I say that is I don't think there's any debate that there is a market for the product, no matter what Magic Twitter thinks. The question is, how to what degree does the print run exceed the immediate demand from that segment? There is some number of units that will be absorbed instantly. Can we both agree that if there was only ten thousand units of this, they would probably sell out day one and skyrocket?
2: So I'm I'm going to kind of dovetail this off a ways, and I think the way that this product is going to be interacted with by the community is for the experience overall. Like that's that's why somebody wants to to buy or interact with this product. Um, you know, you in in Pokemon. Um, we have a number of customers who come into the store that buy boxes and continue buying boxes because they are trying to put together a set of the latest Pokemon set where they have opened every single card in their set. They didn't trade for it. They didn't buy it. They they were the ones who cracked the pack and and had that experience. And I think there's going to be a number of people interacting with this product in a similar fashion. So you may have a, a casual player who's just trying to get a duel they can put in their commander deck, and that duel might be the most important card that they'll ever own. Right, because oh I, I bought this pack, I, I was at the show and bought it, or whatever the story is. They have a story, they, they get to experience it, and you know, somebody might want to be playing Black Green Commander decks because they opened a bayou and want to be able to show off and, and have that experience. At the same time, you know, there's gonna be people on the top end that you know, there might be somebody who tries to open every card for this whole set. Um, Chris Wilson, the designer of Path of Exile, the video game has been kind of open about his collecting with magic and uh, how he would try to get everything, everything, um, and has has slack enough because of how much is going on, but he would be somebody who I would think would be uh, interested in in trying to open all the Power Nine or, you know, put the credit card on the table and open packs until I hit a Black Lotus. Um, Obviously, I don't know Chris particularly well. But just as, a, as an example of somebody we can kind of think of as uh, I have a lot of money that I can, a lot of disposable income to spend on this game and this product. like That's what I want to do. So getting back to how is, how is initial demand going to work, I think there are a good number of people who are going to say, I'll, I'll get you know four boxes or two boxes or, or eight or whatever number that they kind of feel. And there's just kind of a gap between somebody who will conceptually care about this product to somebody who is actively interested in in engaging with that product, um, which really makes this a difficult product. And then on top of that, uh, we have to remember that Wizards of the Coast is designing this product, and we don't know what nonsense we're going to have to deal with on the secondary market. If you remember when Double Masters VIP came out, people thought, oh, I could get the the forcible mana double mythic box and Yes.
0: Because of the image they chose on the packaging.
2: Right. And Watsy had to uh, apologize and mail out extra packs because well one of one of the slots was mythic or rare, the other slot was only a rare. You couldn't do it. Um but it shows that Watsi is thinking about how these products get engaged with and opened in the public overall. So there's a possibility that uh the packs are seated in a box in a certain way. Theoretically, if I was designing this, I might say, oh, you're guaranteed a, a dual or a power card every every box, every four packs, which just destroys the value of selling loose packs, right? You can only, you'd only ever buy a box because you don't want somebody to have opened the, the dual or power and sold the, the not good packs on the internet. Alternatively, like, we don't know what the print quality is like on the set. We could have the nicest, Singles that we've ever seen, or we could have a Camarilla Legend Two situation, and like those sorts of things, just really affect how good the, or bad this product going to be, and that's kind of terrifying. <laughs> so to get get to the get to the official stats on that,
0: we do know that it is ninety six percent to hit on duels or Power Nine in modern frame per box, and we also know that it is twenty three no twenty eight percent to hit on one of those in retro frame per box so across three boxes you would be very likely to hit once in retro on the big ticket items and three times in modern frame
2: right and that's that's assuming it's it's fair and random right yeah yeah because what, what the subtext
0: of what you said was there have been a lot of collation issues lately there there have been i've noticed over and over and over again because I tend to open at least a case of each collector booster box that comes out and in part for the research of understanding how each product opens and being able to make note of that for for future use. And coalition is definitely a thing. So like in double masters 2022 uh, collector boosters where you get four packs per box, if you hit an imperial seal in your first pack, there's a pretty decent chance you're going to see another imperial seal in that box. Now, it's not flawless... But there are for sure correlation issues. And I, and I have noticed that multiple variants of the same card thing as a persistent theme. So it's going to be very amusing if opening a Lotus in one pack leads to another Lotus in the retro frame and then getting two pure laces in the other guy's
1: boxes down at the other end of the table. I mean, look at VIP as an example. They didn't even put shrink wrap around the individual boxes for the most expensive product they had ever printed to date. I mean, that's <laughs> that's pretty much Watsy in a, in a nutshell there. Uh, Michael, I'm curious, I mean, with regards to value, what do you think, a two, two-part question, what do you think this does to the collector's edition specifically? Because I think that's the one I'd be most curious if you think it's going to suppress uh, the price of and directly compete. And then um, big picture, I mean, what is your predictions, if any, regarding you know, what this does going forward in terms of, you know, is this a once in every five ten years thing, or is this going to be the start of a new trend?
2: One of the things that Wizards of the Coast is really adept at doing is just squeezing reprint equity in a way where they don't destroy the value of cards in general, but ensure there's ample availability. And where I would, expect to see this go in a, a three to five year time span is you can walk into any local game store in the country and they will have all 10 dual lands available i think as a wizards of the coast goal that's kind of the the ideal end game right if you if you look at uh, the the cons of Tarkir fetches right like onslaught polluted delta was a hundred dollars at one point it got reprinted now The average game store probably has all five cons fetches. They certainly have all five MH2 fetches in stock. And it's really healthy for the game for people to be able to buy and interact with these these items. I think the challenge of Magic 30 as a product is they kind of had to start at the very top and work down because if they just release this as $50 booster packs, uh, one, you don't have the perceived value that these cards are as good as the originals, whereas by giving them this very high value... They're treated as a substitute good instead of an inferior good in a lot of ways. Which I think is, is fascinating and smart. And then also I think they're going to be going back to this well time and time again uh, in in different permutations of how do we get people in a spot where they can open up duels at their local game store. Which is great for the game. Like I, I want to see people play the game. I want to see people have fun and enjoy it. And part of that is keeping cards as accessible as you can. Uh, getting back to Collector's edition. Um, collector's edition has always been in an interesting spot. Um, Fifty dollars back then was like still kind of a lot of money, so the the product didn't have a lot of appeal on the on the player market and back in the nineties. But it's not a product we see very often. Um, I've owned. I've I've bought Collector's edition Black Lotuses three times this year total. One of those times was from somebody who had three of them. Um, the other time was from somebody who had bought a collection and, and sold to me that had a single Lotus in it. But the point is that the number of these that, those that change hands throughout the year is very, very low, which means that theoretically it should be kind of insulated from any value changes. Um, we sold a CE Lotus on Twitter through a, a retweet reply auction where basically the price goes down every time somebody interacts with the post and somebody will just say i want it at that price and they end up paying about 27 or 2800 for a reasonably nice black lotus so i think that's kind of what we're going to see is that's that's the retail 700 for the moxon like jumping had a little bit on the curve of where those cards were were headed but i can't imagine C is going to change price all that much um, one of the Bigger trends I've kind of seen this past year or two years is that magic cards are too expensive for people to want to uh, have out in public kind of casually, right? Like all these old school tournaments, um, people want to be having a beer on the table while they're playing old school, which is great. Enjoy playing magic the way you play magic. But do you really want a $45,000 beta Lotus on the same table as as your beer? Like Probably not. So seeing people move down from beta unlimited into CE, especially if it's just I want to travel and play with this and have a little less stress in my life, um, is kind of the continuing trend. So I think CE is probably still going to be in an okay place. Um, I'm sure the new versions will be acceptable for old school communities. I believe that's kind of where they've already ruled it. But I would expect people to really want the ce copies for that that community and there are hundreds of old school players actively playing
0: that you're referring to the retro frames i have a feeling the modern frames are in doubt for uh for old school um but i've heard that specifically in north america as opposed to europe as long as they use the old art they are they are potential to be accepted
2: Right, I think the challenge is how big of a gap is going to exist between the two printings and I can't I can't imagine for old school in particular that people will want to be playing with the new printings if the price is remotely comparable. Uh, if a CE Lotus is 3000 and the new one is $2,500 uh, most people in that community will spring for the the nicer version for them.
0: So one of the factors there of course is getting back to this print run question because if you guys are in the ballpark, and it's 100,000 boxes printed, then we're talking about something like 2,000 retro duels and 1,200 lotuses versus 14,000 ever printed for CE and ICE. So one of the ways in which CE, ICE doesn't get particularly rocked by the presence of these new versions is that there's only less than 10% of total supply being added to the market, right? And, and that's and that's at the high end of our our range.
2: So objectively, that's true. I don't think that's really how it's going to play out in practice. When you look at how often collector edition cards change hands in general, like, do you think a hundred collector edition lotuses changed hands worldwide in the past year, versus five hundred from the new set? Assuming that a lot of people are keeping what they open, or or Uh, keeping the proc sealed like there there's definitely a lot of supply that is going to make an impact on the market that's for sure
0: right so that's a very good point in the case of something like ceice you have a lot of settled copies that are have previously been lost or destroyed so that full fourteen does doesn't or isn't market facing and that at any in any given year as you said Question marks around how many total copies ever face the market, whereas with the 30th edition, most of it that gets cracked either goes into a collection or faces the market immediately. Especially if it was in the hands of a vendor slash speculator, um, has a very good chance of being market facing in a, in a short time frame. So, your point is that you might end up even if there's only 1,200 of these retro lotuses half of those could end up market-facing in a year, whereas on average, you might only ever see 50 or 100 ICE face the market. Right. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's a very good point. So what percent? which brings us to another question, what percentage of this total product run could you see being opened? You know, how how many will be put on the shelf to potentially appreciate verse, versus being cracked?
2: I think this product is... Awful as a uh, long-term dividend stock type item, uh, because there's just nothing really unique about it. Uh, in that they they've gone back to the well once, they can go back to it again. And if they did, let's say they hypothetically did a exact reprint of the set except with moto art, you know, for half the price. You know, why is anyone ever going to care about the original art for? 1500 when you can just buy the new one for for five or six or whatever, or there's one with foils or there's a million different permutations of how they can do a product that's spiritually very similar to this going forward on a on a very long time frame. Um, that said, I think there are a lot of people who will be buying this and will be holding it for a special occasion for a, for a draft with friends. I think this product would actually be really fun to draft, uh, and might try and do that myself at some point. I would expect maybe 20 or 30% to get opened in in the short term.
0: Okay. So, I mean, again, if we thought that there was 1,200 Lotuses, then we're talking about potentially 400 of them being cracked in a relatively short time frame. Right. So it could be
2: half of those being for marketed or so.
0: Yeah. Um, in terms of a vendor that traffics in a lot of high-end cards, <clears throat> does the shift in policy when you go back to like the 30,000 foot view level where Watsi is clearly putting a, you know, drawing a a new line in the sand saying this is not as well defended territory as it seemed up until now. We, we may well, you know, they could do an apology style set a year from now or two years from now where they put out very similar things at a lower price point and market it as being the more reasonable alternative. They could, expand on the program and provide access to antiquities cards to arabian Nights, to uh legends cards or whatever they want to do there could be a gaia's cradle with this card back two years from now does any of that change your willingness to be holding reserve lists like beta or unlimited revised duels was there discussions with your buying team as to whether there's a strategy shift on your end
2: we're not shifting strategies at all. I'm fairly confident the market's going to be stable. People are still going to be spending money on, on cars, et cetera. Um, there's some bankroll management concerns, right? If people are spending a thousand dollars on this, what are, were they not going to be buying otherwise? Or what are they going to be selling to be able to buy this for a thousand dollars? Because that also happens, uh, on a longer time frame. As long as we're staying reasonably diverse and healthy, it's, it's fine. Um, I can kind of compartmentalize our inventory into into four quarters where uh, we have a, a quarter in uh, four horseman era type type cards, uh, a quarter in, I guess thirds, not quarters, uh, in modern era non-foil and uh, a third in modern era foil. And as long as we kind of are spread around a little bit, I wouldn't be too worried because they just, they can't reprint everything fast enough, right? If you think about how many different cards have value, let alone things like a beta Savannah Lions, which is $600 compared to the you know, newest printing that's 50 cents, like just a very wide gap on, on those things. So as long as you're staying diverse and not buying too much, it's fine. Uh, I think there's some potential softening in revised duels. One of the challenges there is the types of events going on. Uh, when we had Command Fests, we went from owning 300 duels to owning 15 over three months because those players really wanted duels. And in the SCG Con era, we're less likely to be selling duels in, in quite the same fashion. Uh, and obviously, as the year goes on, it's easier to own too many duels in, in August, September, October than it is in March, April, May. Uh, but I, I think the market overall is is healthy. I think some of the cards are kind of exposed if they don't have a lot of underlying utility. Uh, Candelabra of Thanos, or even Mishra's Workshop Bazaar Baghdad, uh, Moat and Tabernacle, all kind of suffer from, uh, I don't want to say fringe use, but like, not a ton of competitive demand. Uh, a lot more commander demand. And it it becomes... So it, it's easy to print... Uh, Beta the set, right? You have basically thirty good rares out of one hundred and ten cards because they double the duels, whatever. If you look at antiquities, right? As as I said, and obviously antiquities is a really small set, um, and Arabian even smaller. But antiquities, you know, if I ask you what the fifth most valuable card is in antiquities, would you have a guess? Right,
0: sets that have are very top loaded. On their most expensive cards and fall off quickly are going to have trouble in this model.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think it's Triskelion at like hundred and fifty dollars or so. Um, or no, it'd be it's, that'd be sixth, right? Because you have uh, Workshop Candelabra, Power Artifact, Transmuter Artifact, Winter Factory. But like, it goes down to this card that nobody cares about that is also you know, in a corset and mirrored in for fifty cents. Like just such a weird dynamic of of why do people care about this? And like a, a fancy back factory is like not going to do anything when you have a, you know, fancy one in MH two like for a dollar like it's just it's just very very hard for watsu to directly reprint the stuff.
1: Since I think we're getting to the tail end, you know, I, one question I have, which is totally off topic, but there's a lot of negativity on Magic Twitter. I just tw- tweeted, you know that. It has to be challenging for some people to be so negative all the time. And so I want to take a positive spin and just ask you, you know, what is something in the last year or two that you think, you know, has really gone right for Magic and gives you hope for kind of the future of the game?
2: What has gone right for Magic? Magic. The fact Scalding Tarn is fifteen dollars is incredible for Magic. Um, sure, it's this card that's like a multi-format staple. Um, it's it's gone to a point where it is uh, desirable and like still you're still happy to open it and you can still like trade it for something cool, but it's at a price point that most people would find uh, they can they can justify spending some money on. Um, I think that's kind of the biggest success of controlling pricing of a card. Um, I think the list is getting to the point where Watsi has done the experimentation and dialed in on how they want cards to be reprinted on it to a point where um, it's generating meaningful reprints without destroying card values in a really neat way. Uh, Black Machias is kind of an example of a card that was destroyed a little too hard because of Streets and Yucapena's reprint but if you look at ancient tomb, right, like the list ancient tomb has done a reasonable amount to improve the supply of the card, but the price is still—it's still a fifty-dollar card. Uh, so I think where we see the list in in six months is putting meaningful copies of cards into players' hands in a way that WotC has always really struggled with doing.
1: Those are pretty good. Thanks.
0: All right, so I want to I want to double back to um, print run on 30th edition because I continue to believe that this is really is the most important point. One of the rumors that's circulating is that Wizards has already panicked um, that the, the market response is likely to be negative or underwhelming and undershoot their print run. And the evidence for that is that vendors have been offered product through distribution which was not supposed to be part of the game plan here. The original announcement was that this product was being was going to be sold on such and such a date for such and such an amount of time until it sold out, online-only, direct, basically using the same e-commerce tools that Wizards uses to move secret layers. And the only other units that were supposed to be in circulation were the ones going to LGS's gratis. So in the WPN network, I think it's four or five units per store or something like that, and it depends on whether you're premium or not. But now the rumor circulates that some amount of the units are going to be offered directly through distribution to vendors, but they're not getting a wholesale price on them below the thousand dollar price point. In fact, they were offered them at $1,100 a pop. So as a vendor, would you take on any amount of units at $1,100?
2: So first and foremost, I try to avoid buying risk and, uh, buying things that are generally uh, not flexible, right? Theoretically, when, whenever you're buying something, if you're buying it a buy list, it's relatively easy to sell out at like a, a plus or minus 10% type number, right? Like the worst purchase I ever made in the past two years was I bought 600 boxes of Jumpstart for $87 when Amazon had first put them back up. And I'm now selling them for Seventy dollars minus fees and shipping. Where, yeah, it, it's awful when you lose twenty percent on a deal like this. But it was very easy to just find a buyer on this because these products are all kind of kind of sellable. And you know the the CEO Lotus I mentioned earlier that I sold, I'm probably into it for three thousand. We sold it for twenty seven or twenty eight. Yeah, I'm not thrilled about losing two hundred dollars, but I want that money for Vegas. It's important that we're reasonably liquid for that and to take advantage of new opportunities. So I never wanna be putting money into a spot that uh, I would have a hard time getting short-term liquidity back out of. So that's why, as a product, I just I want nothing to do with Magic 30 at all. Uh, second though, if you are the, the vendor buying in at 1100, you are way on the back foot compared to all of the, the retail buyers who are getting in at 1000, right? So if you go on tcgplayer.com, list your copy, you know, if you because of the fee cap, if you list the item for one thousand ninety dollars as a uh, retail seller, that's that's a break even, right? Depending on how sales tax gets handled on you, but realistically, in that $11, eleven eleven fifty ish range, uh, is is your your break even easy out point. Uh, having the the vendor tier be buying in past that is just <laughs> unbelievably challenging right um, yeah that the market just has to move that much further right
0: my my assumption of the implication of the way that that offer is structured is that for them to have the cojones to to be not offering a wholesale discount means that the the online purchase is very is probably severely limited copies per household because if it was like a secret layer where you could order 30 at a time, then of course that makes no sense. So it must be that the limit per household is one, two, four copies per household or something. Where, And, and I think you can further assume that part of the reason Wizards is doing this out the back door, assuming that that is in fact happening, is that they very much intend to ensure that this sells out and that this offer through the back channels is part of that process. Let's say that for argument's sake to, you know, cover the whole scenario from all angles, that they were that they printed 100,000 copies. Based on market response in the Twitter sphere and and Facebook and whatever, now their analysts are saying, "You know what? We might only sell 60,000 copies." So, we're going to move, you know, 15,000 or whatever were already designated to LGSs or 20,000 or whatever it is. So we've got another 20,000 we got to worry about here. We're going to put those through distribution. That's going to ensure that within a lot of time period, the online sale sells out. Then we can declare it a success. Somebody's going to get caught holding the bag potentially, but it's not us. And then whatever we fail to move through distribution, we'll just destroy, which is what they did with things like Eldrain Deluxe or Russian product in the last couple of years or whatever, where... Product just literally gets destroyed if it if it's not selling. Does that all kind of compute to how that's likely being handled?
2: I think that's very reasonable for how I would want to approach it. You know, think about uh, the audience overall as a, as a speculator, where you're buying this with the intention of it going up. If if this product's listed for a thousand, you say, yeah, I'm I'm going to put ten percent of my bankroll in this. I'm going to buy two of them. Uh, I think that's a smart play. So you go ahead and buy buy your two. They show up, and the listing is still up, and you can just buy another one for $1,000. What do you do? Like, are you going to list this on TCG Player for $999 now because you have to compete against the original seller? Like, this product will absolutely sell out. It's just a matter of, of how. Um, I was talking to somebody else and uh, brought up how big designer f- fashion brands like Burberry... Will just burn all their extra inventory instead of discounting it even a little bit because they just want to protect that right. brand value.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a perfect analogy because when you when you consider the logic behind the eleven hundred dollar offer through distribution, that's exactly what's going on. By not giving those people access to the units at nine hundred, they can't undercut the market and undercut the declared success. If if the only way to get more units than whatever the maximum is on the primary sale is to pay more for them, then it kind of automatically forces the retail pricing post-sale two, four, six, eight weeks out up into the $1,200, 1300 $1,500 range. And then there's a question of whether FOMO kicks in and the whole thing takes on a life of its own. And then, and then you'll see people buying into the espousing their newfound wisdom about, oh, it's such a low print run. We we looked at this from the wrong angle. This is a pure collectible play.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing to remember is that uh, people like feeling smart, like making decisions that they think are, are intelligent. So when Watsuki says the most you can buy is four, you're going to have orders of four. Now, if there was no cap, <laughs> somebody might buy two or three because oh, I want to open one, sell one, whatever, whatever plan they have, but when the max is four, you're going to see people that have that be an achievable number just buying the four.
0: It's also possible they call an audible on... If they're worried about not selling out, then the cap's going to get raised. One of the things I've seen on Hasbro Pulse, which is their toy analog for the most part to the action on Secret Layers is that generally with most convention exclusives and so forth, the the limit is set to two per household. And I would not be surprised to see that being the selected number here. But if they think that the market response is so bad that they've got to push some units out through distribution, then maybe that cap will be a four or an eight to to make sure that vendors who think that there's a speculative angle to this that are risky, bigger risk takers um, and perhaps more emotional and less logical than you tend to be uh, may take a swipe at it at whatever the max is.
2: Yeah, there are plenty of, of stores who uh, routinely buy a lot of Secret Lair with the intent of selling it down the road. Uh, and that's that's an option. And End of the day, I would be shocked if this product lasts online longer than a day. Uh, I think this is also going to be one of the most hyped releases out there. I think Watsy is going to do a reasonably good job of getting this information into the hands of people who are going to care uh, largely from like a Venn diagram perspective, um, if you compare it to the Here Be Dragons, Beetle, and Grim Secret Lair, like that product, sure. by by virtue of what it was, right? It was it was seven dragons plus a really fancy deck box. Like the ideal customer for that probably doesn't show up to their LGS once a, a month or once a year even. Like they may not even know where their LGS is, but if you, if you just like, if you just put a flyer in like all the booster packs that said, hey, there's this $300 product or a $200 product with fancy dragons in it, and here's the web address, you can go buy it. You know, They would be targeting this whole different demographic of players who just are not tied into the internet because the product is uh, structured in a way where the very casual players would enjoy it and take advantage of it. Whereas this product, because it is chasing these enfranchised uh, whale-type players, they're going to be able to find these people much better. The Magic Thirty opt-in survey, where it was asking like, "Oh, how much money do you spend uh, a year on Magic?" and the options kind of started at like a thousand or three thousand dollars. Kind of ties into that concept of uh, the the audience for this product is more likely to be uh, aware of the internet or actively engaging with the brands on on the wider world than uh, a, a two hundred dollar you know dragon set.
0: Sure. All right. So to wrap things up, um, let's just do a a round table on over under for retro Lotus being more or less than CE or ICE Lotus. What's your take, Michael?
2: Uh, Retro being less. I think the retro frames look really ugly. I'm going to say
0: 30 days out from release. Yeah,
2: I'm going to pull up a, a photo, but I, I think that the, the, the art, the stylistic choices, just like the, the texture and print quality just like, doesn't, it's just not nice. Um, plus like it has the modern Oracle text on it. Like who wants a tap symbol in their life? Uh, I, I would say the new retro one is going to be less.
0: Okay.
1: Derek. I'm going to say about the same. Okay, Um,
0: I think if we're saying 30 days out, I'm also on less by about 20%. But my suspicion is that down the road, because if we're right about print run being sub 100,000, there are so few of these lotuses, they will turn into a pure collectible because all we need is a thousand people to want them and they will disappear.
1: Right, I'll give you a case study for that, which is Hugatsutu. I can't remember exactly. Hugatsutu, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah, the red edition. I mean, that has literally no play value and no memorabilia, and yet still the the foils of that, which has I don't know what a thousand or something in circulation, is fifteen hundred right now. If that's fifteen hundred with no redeeming value besides being a first print of its kind, I can't imagine this isn't valued. <laughs> significantly.
0: that's a very good point because a local vendor quote-unquote, dumped theirs on me, chuckling the whole time at 300 and I f- flipped it for four times that the day after. So there, there is wide misunderstanding in the marketplace, even amongst vendors, as to what supply does to a collectible. And I think a lot of that, if I'm going to make a final point on this topic, it's this. Magic players it, it go all the way back to the release of CE and ICE, why did players think that that was nonsense and wanted nothing to do with it because they were in a hobby where having official game pieces mattered but that often blinds them that they're to the fact that there are collectors in their hobby that almost never play the game and as michael said almost never go to their lgs in a way that in other hobbies would just be what everybody's doing like if you look at the sports card market there's no utility for any of their collectibles you know, even the ones that have jerseys on them, it's not like you get to wear the jersey. It's just sitting there in the, as part of the card. But in that hobby, it's that's just taken for granted because there's never been any utility. I mean, since the days where guys were putting them in their bike spokes, they pay thousands of dollars for booster boxes all the time and don't expect utility. In our hobby, people have got this whole proxy idea twisted around this product in a way that I think is going to blind them to the end result which is a, a manufactured sell-through, <laughs> as we just discussed, and then a probably slow drift up on the top cards in the set.
2: I think the biggest opportunity with the set is actually uh, retroframe commons and uncommons because they are significantly rarer than you would be led to believe.
0: Okay. So playable ones for EDH, you're thinking?
2: Um yeah, so theoretically, like all the retro frame cards are the same rarity, right? It's like a, it's like a TSR sort of situation, uh, Time Spiral Remastered, where uh, you know, there's 300 cards in the set. It's you know basically a one in one in 300 shot of a Black Lotus in your retro slot, or a one in 300 slot for an icy manipulator. Um, and I think you're just gonna see really weird behavior of these cards that people perceive are common when they all of a sudden want four of them. If you want Retro Lightning Bolt as a four of or something, it's just Retro Dark Ritual or whatever. It's it's not as nearly as common as you would think based on it being a common.
0: Because we know that, that slot is 30% rares. It's a fixed rarity for rares in that slot that is not the normal rarity for rares. Uh,
2: 30 or possibly possibly higher, right? Um, watsy I would expect, has gotten much tighter on how they discuss numbers in public. So, if it, they said 30 and it's really 38, which would be the, the 111 sort of number, um, I wouldn't be shocked if that was how uh, how it ended up happening. And, and yeah, it's just, I think you're going to see some weirdness with, with retro comms in particular.
0: And one of the interesting things here is nobody's going to be able to mass crack this product. <laughs> the gaming company is not going to be able to get, you know, even if they get offered some through distribution, they're not going to get enough to get a law of large numbers kind of... Uh, strong stats preview of what the the cracking rates are um all right so very interesting topic uh michael thanks very much for joining us tonight we appreciate your uh insights as always and wish you the best of luck on the uh on the vending tour scene and uh, hope you get you and your team stay safe out there as uh, we still struggle with this nasty covid problem
2: Yep. i appreciate it thanks for having me uh, encourage everyone to follow me on Twitter at TOA Michael or uh, subscribe to me over on Patreon, patreon.com slash TOA Michael, or buy cards from us on TOAmagic.com. Uh, We're currently taking pre- or taking onset pickup orders for Vegas, uh, which is the end of October. We're going to be at SCG Philly the second week in November, as well as Dreamhack in Atlanta the third week in November, Brothers War release weekend.
1: Fantastic. And Derek, where can folks find you online? You can find me online at OkoAssassin on Twitter or my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. How about you, James?
0: You guys can find me on Twitter at MDG Critic, as well
1: as via my occasional articles on
0: mtgprice.com and my constant haunting of the ProTrader Discord. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com ProTrader service for just $9.99 a month or $109.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast. Fantastic Articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, low-cost group buys, and a super active Discord forum that will drive better returns and save you money playing
1: Magic: The Gathering. Once again, MTG Fast Finance is proudly sponsored by Cool Stuff Inc., where you can find all the sorts of cool nerdy stuff in stock, including all Magic: During best singles, sealed product, and a plethora of other collectibles. Use promo code Finance Five during checkout at CoolStuffInc.com to save five percent on your order and to support this podcast. That brings us to the end of this episode of MTG Fast Finance. As always, appreciate the conversation, James, and thanks so much for joining us, Michael. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Michael. And we'll see you all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.